0: Uh, Being a new year, we are also starting a new Sunday morning series for a few weeks called Sundays Why Do We Do What We Do When We Gather? And some of us were thinking about this, this actual topic, and then we found out uh, that the Way Church in Vancouver had had taught on this very topic or theme last year. Maybe we heard about it and got the idea, but we kind of felt like God has been inspiring this whole thinking and helped us with our friends at the Way. Uh, pastor Chris Price especially helped me and, and uh, encouraged me with this particular message, particularly. Some of us are making it a new priority to attend church on Sundays this year. Some of us, some of you have been doing this for a long time. Um, some of you have been doing it for your whole life. That's my story. I feel like uh, my dad was a pastor. I feel like I was literally born in the church nursery. I think that's what it ha- what happened. My mom just took a break from the service, and there I was, I suspect, I-, I suspect. Um, And this is, I think it's good uh, in life and all of life, but every once in a while it can be helpful to step back and think about why we are doing what we're doing. Knowing the why of something can make a huge difference. The the why can infuse the what with deeper meaning and purpose. The why can inspire and motivate and, and help bring focus to what we do. Like when we gather on Sundays, you know, we sing. We pray, we practice generosity, uh, we teach and preach the Bible, we take part in sacraments like the Lord's Supper. And so we want to actually do a deeper dive on some of these in the coming weeks so that in the coming years, these activities might become richer and more meaningful for us. But this morning we'll be looking more broadly at why gather on a Sunday morning at all? Why do we meet? Why might it be actually important that we gather. And so we'll look at four reasons why we gather, but first, why don't we just pause for a moment and pray. Lord, Lord Jesus, thank you for this church. Thank you for Hillside and the work you're doing here with our families that are part of it, the individuals that have, have called this place home. And, and Jesus, as we gather this morning around your word, around your teaching, I pray you would inspire us, encourage us, strengthen our faith. Help us uh, to discover ways in which we might um, walk in your ways and learn to live the life that you've called life we pray these things together in jesus name amen so four reasons why we gather on sundays one we gather together because the early church gathered together Um, the book of acts is one of my favorite books in the bible to read it's in the new testament just after the gospels and it really documents the early story of the early church And Acts 2, 42 and following have this really great description of what was going on. Verse 42 says that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And then it actually goes on to describe all these great things were happening. God was clearly showing up in some profound ways, meeting people where they were. And and it says that the people were in awe at all that God was doing in their midst And then in verse 46, it says, Every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. So you have uh, all these kind of good things going on in this new movement that Jesus got started. You know, it's a beautiful picture of connection And community and and radical generosity and and at the core of all the activity what were they doing they were meeting together we're told first they uh, they met in the temple courts now the temple so you'd understand was at the center of Jewish prayer and worship and the early church kind of carried on in in some not all but some of that tradition they gather for teaching and worship and prayer it's also clear that they met not just in the temple, they also met together in homes, often around the table, around a meal. I love how much eating is mentioned in Scripture. Uh, so they, they had these large gatherings, and, and then they had these smaller, more private gatherings in homes. So, so we do something very similar. We, we have these larger public gatherings most often on Sundays, and, and, and then we gather in smaller groups in more intimate private settings, sometimes at home in a life group. So large gatherings and small gatherings. Now, the thing is, there can be a bit of a frustrating tension with this. Uh, some of us lean maybe more towards one than the other. Uh, we got, uh, you, know, we, uh, you, you actually wish that Sunday gatherings were a little bit more like a small group. You know where everybody get, you know, we just gather around a circle and everybody gets to say something if they want to. And then others are, are like, you wish your life group was more like Sunday morning. The, and it was maybe more focused on, on worship and, and hearing some great teaching. Um, turns out we need both. We need the large gathering and we need the small gathering. Both work hand in hand in maturing us as apprentices of Jesus. And I would suggest both help us grow in very different ways. There's the kind of things that you learn on Sunday morning and you learn new things in in your life group. Um, They're similar but different. William Beckham, uh, a church thinker, who's thought a lot about the church, he talks about this. He talks about how larger gatherings and smaller gatherings are like maybe like how two wings function on an airplane. What happens if you only have one wing? Yeah, you're not going to get very far, you hope that you know this while you're still on the ground, it's good to figure this out. You tend not to fly, and in other terms, if you were to lose a wing during flight, you would actually go fly around in circles. He describes the church like this, that actually it's made up of these small gatherings, these large gatherings, they function in these wings, they help carry your life and carry our community life together. You see, in larger gatherings, there's perhaps more of an emphasis on God's greatness, on what theologians call God's transcendence. Uh, We're meant to gather together and have this look up, and we often uh, experience that in a a setting where there's more of us around. We get more perspective when we're not in a small group. We get the perspective of the whole community. And then in the the smaller gatherings, there's perhaps more of a focus on God's nearness, His closeness. There's intimacy made more possible. What theologians call God's imminence. So we've got transcendence and imminence. And we need both. They both shape us profoundly. So in the Illinois Church, what did they do in these large gatherings? We're told they were devoted to prayer, to reading and teaching Scripture, uh, they were committed to hospitality and radical generosity. And this continued to be the practice in the church. Um, in the second century, Justin Martyr, we have this letter from him. He was a Christian thinker and philosopher. And in this letter, he talks about what Christians would do when they gathered on Sundays. By, by the way, why did they gather on Sundays? The Lord's Day. Uh, Sunday specifically, because the Jewish tradition was they actually met for worship on Saturdays. But as uh, we, uh, we heard Simon mention early at the service, we uh, we meet on Sundays because it's the resurrection. It was re- we were reminded that on the third day, Sunday, Jesus rose from the grave. We meet on Resurrection Sunday. Every Sunday is meant to be an Easter Sunday for us. But he, he said their gathering included reading from Scripture, a sermon or a message, communal prayer, and they'd sing together and celebrate communion often with a meal, and their gatherings were marked by Generosity. So what we do today in our gatherings goes right back to the beginning, and though it's different in style, it's not different in substance. And this is happening all over the world. Right now, millions, probably hundreds of millions of Christians are meeting in gatherings around the world. I've had the privilege of worshiping in churches across the world. Um, My son, when he was five months old, discovered he could hear in a worship service in Zambia where the decibel levels were a little bit like a Seahawks football game, I think, right off the charts. And our son goes, "Uh." (laughs) I've worshiped in places like the United Kingdom and Kenya and Lebanon and Holland and Hong Kong and uh, Portugal. And right now, uh, all these people, millions of people are gathering together in styles and approaches that are very different from ours, but very appropriate in their context and in their culture. Community and Christians are, are doing some of the same things we're doing, and it looks different. Some are big, and some are small, some are loud, uh, some have drums, and others are doing it a cappella or with an organ. Some are very formal, and some are more informal. Uh, Some have priests, others have pastors. Some have good coffee, some have very bad coffee. (laughs) Some pass the plate for an offering and some point to a box at the back like we do. You know, I I think when it comes to thinking about the style of how we do things, we're never meant to take the style part of our gatherings so seriously. It's all about the substance. As, As I heard Jason Ballard once say, he said, We don't moralize our preferences. The things we happen to like, the things we happen to prefer, aren't necessarily morally preferable. Because although we're different in style, we're the same in substance, especially if Jesus is at the center of our gatherings. And so when we gather with other believers, we are connecting with Jesus. We're connecting with other believers throughout the world and through history. This, As, as Hebrews says, this great cloud of witnesses, this, this larger community that we're part of, the church worldwide. And we gather because the early church did, and we carry on in that heritage and that practice. Second point, why we gather. We gather because Scripture tells us to. Let me read from Hebrews chapter 10, verse 23 to 25. Let us hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who is promised is faithful. And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day approaching. Uh, For some of us, I think that first verse could be your verse for this year. Let us Hold unswervingly to the hope we profess, for he who promised is faithful, right? Hold on to hope, folks. Don't let go. Keep your eyes on God because God is faithful. Great line. And then the author tells us one of the ways we we hold on to hope. He says, let us consider or give careful thought to or, or attention to how you might encourage others spurring them on. How do we hold on to hope? We encourage one another. How do we do that with great regularity? We meet together. He says, don't give up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing. Some in that context, obviously, got out of the habit of gathering. Uh, We think a lot about habits at this time of year, and habits can be so good and habits can be so bad, but they're kind of like tracks that our lives run on, right? Some people made a choice once, I won't gather. And the first choice made it easier to make the second choice. I didn't gather, my life didn't fall apart. And we keep making choices. And as you keep making choices, a habit gets formed where a choice isn't even involved anymore. Uh, Scripture says don't give up this habit of meeting together because faith was never meant to be done alone. Faith was never meant to be DIY, do it yourself. You can't DIY life with God. Uh, As Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the German pastor who was imprisoned in World War II because of his faith, he said, it's all about life together. Uh, George Guthrie uh, is a New Testament professor who we are graced with. He's at regent, but he comes here with some regularities to speak. He's a recognized authority on the book of Hebrews. And he makes this comment on this passage. He says, The foundational assembly or or gathering is that of a local body of believers meeting together regularly for fellowship around the word and worship of God. The person who asserts that God can be known, worshipped, and followed out in nature apart from the church knows little of scripture church history or true christian experience thus we are called to gather together regularly for encouragement and accountability we must not forsake this aspect of the christian life we meet for an encouragement and accountability because what happens if we don't have these if we don't have encouragement and accountability we can drift from our faith like the song we sang earlier, prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. <laughs> Every time I sing that, that verse, I, l- I have a love-hate relationship with that verse because it confronts me with myself. <laughs> I'm a guy who is prone to wonder. I, I, uh, I think it's interesting, you go back to Hebrews earlier in the book, back to chapter 3, where it says, it kind of gives this, I'd say it's a tender warning. We just see to it, brothers and sisters, that none of you has a sinful, unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God, but encourage one another daily, as long as it is called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceitfulness. What he's saying is, is left to ourselves, without encouragement, without regular encouragement, without accountability to live the life, we will find staying connected to God difficult. Uh, someone called us at the church this week and, and just confessed that I'm really struggling. I haven't been coming to church, and I'm really <laughs> agonizing about how I can actually cultivate a faith. I find it so hard, and, and, and I actually urged them. I said, listen, you need to be part of a church family. You, it's, it's impossible to live this without a church family. And if we drift, we can be hardened by sin's deceitfulness, which means We can kind of be tricked to think we're okay when we're not okay. Uh, Saint John of the Cross uh, was a Spanish priest in the 1500s, and he said this. He said, the virtuous soul that is alone is like the burning coal that is alone. It'll grow colder rather than hotter. Do you remember that illustration from Nicky Gumbel years ago? He talked about the, the man of faith who was trying to describe what happens as our faith can grow cold. You take the the, the burning ember from the fire and place it by itself and it grows cool. And I believe he's right. I believe Christianity can only be lived in community. Philip Yancey made this confession in his book, Why Church. He said, At a deep level, I sense that church contains something I desperately need. Whenever I abandon church for a time, I find that I'm the one who suffers, my faith fades. And the crusty shell of lovelessness grows over me again. I grow colder rather than hotter. And so we gather together week by week because Scripture tells us to. Third, we, be, we gather because it's good for us. We really is. I mean, I know this sounds like the, the part of the story where I say eat your vegetables because they're good for you. But church is nutritious, I think. There's something about the communal Christian experience that actually enhances health and well-being, and it's very different from what comes from solitary spirituality. There's just, friends, there's lots of evidence for this. I'll give you just a bit of research uh, because it's consistently shown a reduced health risk for regular church attenders versus non-attenders. For example, 29% reduced risk of depression, 33% reduced risk of death. Uh, premature death, I believe. Uh, I don't think you can actually reduce the risk of deaths (laughs) entirely. Uh, Still, from what I understand, 100% of everybody dies. Uh, 33% reduced risk of adolescent illegal drug use, 50% reduced risk of divorce, 84% reduced risk of suicide. A, A big part of this is simply how God wired us. I mean, I, he, he was the one who, in the early days of Scripture, in, in creation itself, said, it is not good for man to be alone, right? We were made, we were created to be connected relationally and deeply, and especially in a community that emphasizes support and encouragement, as the support is, as the church is meant to do. Um, many of you have likely heard the, the Scripture, the joy of the Lord is your strength. You know that one? The joy of the Lord is your strength. It's from Nehemiah. Joy is powerful. I mean, it really is. We we need joy in our lives like we need food and like we need oxygen. But it's interesting. A 20-year study of more than 4,700 people found that joy is contagious. Did you know that people who become happy make it more likely that their friends will become happy? Isn't that cool? It's this ripple effect. Apparently, joy... The studies show this. Joy is so powerful, you're more likely to be happy if even a friend of a friend of a friend becomes happy. Social researcher uh, Robert Putnam writes, he says, the single most common finding from a half-century's research on life satisfaction is best predicated by the breadth and depth of one's social connections. He goes on to make this staggering comment. He says, as a rough rule of thumb, if you belong to no groups, but you decide to join one, you cut your risk of dying over the next year in half. What? I like it. it, It's uh, difficult to think of anyone not interested in cutting their risk of death in half, right? That's why our new motto for life groups is join one or die, (laughs) Yeah. That's our new, I could see that. uh... Can we do that on the front sign? Come to church or die. I mean, yeah, this is why I'm not in marketing. Thomas R. Kelly uh, celebrates Christian community with these words. He says, he's describing what it's it's like to be part of a, a Christian community. He says, we know that these souls are with us lifting their lives and ours continuously to God and opening themselves with us in steady and humble obedience to Him. It's as if if the boundaries of ourself were enlarged as if we were within them and as if they were within us. Their strength given to them by God becomes our strength. And our joy given to us by God becomes their joy. We gather because it's good for us. Like one hillsider who recently described to me, they said coming on Sundays for them was like getting a weekly vitamin infusion. They literally, that was their description for church. Finally, the fourth reason, we gather together to worship God, to worship the living God. We uh, gather week after week to reorientate our lives around the God who made us. We sometimes are probably a little bit guilty, I think, of of thinking of worship as what we do with the music on Sunday mornings. And uh, it is called worship music, but it's just actually part of what we do in worship. The whole service, why we gather, it's a worship service. It's about reminding each other and ourselves that there is a God who made us and who loves us and who deserves our adoration In our obedience and our love. As Jesus asked or answered when he was asked what's the greatest commandment what did he say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself of course. Knowing this that it's all about worship brings focus on how we actually worship together. Uh, philosopher Soren Kierkegaard, the Danish philosopher, once said this. He said, uh, "We tend to think of church as a kind of theater. You know, we sit in the audience attentively watching an actor on stage, who draws every eye to himself. If sufficiently entertained, we show our gratitude with applause and cheers, or comments at the back, at the front door. Church, though, should be the opposite of the theater." In church, God is the audience for our worship. Far from playing the role of the leading actor, the minister should function as something like a prompter, the inconspicuous helper who sits beside the stage and prompts by whispering. What matters most takes place within the hearts of the congregation, not among the actors on stage. We should leave a worship service asking ourselves not what did I get out of it, but rather was God Pleased with what happened as we come to a worship service we're meant to lift our eyes up <laughs> to direct our gaze beyond the platform and towards God and when we get in on that kind of a viewpoint we find ourselves less distracted by any kind of talent deficit that occurs in the gathering I didn't like the music I didn't like the preaching I didn't like the temperature in the room. I I don't know, I've heard a lot of complaints over the years. I can think of, I didn't much care for the the fill-in-the-blank. For when we actually worship, we are looking up beyond all those things. We realize God, not us, not the congregation, is the audience who matters most. I'm trying to learn a lesson from C.S. Lewis, who wrote this about his church. Can you imagine a bright guy like C.S. Lewis attending church? and how frustrating that would be at times. He says, I disliked very much their hymns, which I considered to be fifth-rate poems set to sixth-rate music. (laughs) But as I went on, I saw the great merit of it. I realized that the hymns, which were just sixth-rate music, I don't, what is sixth-rate music? I'm assuming it's bad. were nevertheless being sung with devotion and benefit by an old saint in elastic side boots in the opposite pew. And then you realize that you aren't fit to clean those boots. It gets you out of your solitary conceit. A smart guy, devout guy like C.S. Lewis needed to worship God amongst everyday ordinary people. There's no exception, no exception, no exception. See, church exists primarily not to provide entertainment or to encourage vulnerability or to build self-esteem or to facilitate friendships. We exist to worship God, and if it fails in that, it fails. All the music, all the teaching, all the other trappings are mere promptings to support the ultimate goal of getting worshipers in touch With God to pleasing God that's the point of worship to worship says Walter Wink is to remember who owns the house so the big question of our lives is not whether we'll keep our resolutions this year in order to become better people that's not the big question the better question is what will we give our hearts to because scripture says you are what you love You are what you love, and your identity and your dignity depend on what you love and what you worship. Championship golfer Paul Eisinger was diagnosed with cancer in 1993, and he was just stunned by this news. And he said this. He said, "I was shocked. I thought that my doctor would tell me they discovered some weird infection in my shoulder, or perhaps even a stress fracture. The one word I never expected to hear him say was "cancer." And Azinger went through all these treatments and and came through cancer free, but he was a different guy post cancer. This is what he writes. He said, "Is, Is golf still important to me? Yes and no. Yes, of course, golf is important to me. I love the game, it's how I make a living. But no, golf is no longer at the top of my priority list. In fact, it runs a slow fourth. My priorities now are God, my family, friends, and golf. Golf is no longer my God. Golf is hitting a little white ball. God is my God, and God is a whole lot bigger than golf. God is a whole lot bigger than anything else we might be tempted to give our lives to. And I wonder this morning what you're tempted to give your life to other than God. You yeah, know, actually shows up in how we live, <laughs> shows up in the priorities that we set for ourselves, how we arrange our weeks, <laughs> whether uh, 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 the, the life together, church life together is actually a part of your, your priority list shows whether, where God maybe fits in your order of priorities. I, I love, I was struck by this comment by English apologist Andy Bannister who said, there's something that should be inconvenient about church <laughs> because it's not like going to the movies. It's about worshiping the living God. And at at times, worshiping the living God is going to feel inconvenient. It's not going to scratch all our boxes. But we do it to gather, to to reorientate our lives around and hearts around God, to look up beyond the things that we do in our services and to look to the God who made us. And yes, our our gatherings are flawed. I, uh, I love the giftedness of this community, the people who serve us in worship every Sunday. The musicians, the speakers who come. We regularly, though, bump into what might be called a talent deficit, right? In a community, we sometimes can be irritated by one another. We can actually hurt one another. And there's no question life together can be hard. But it turns out there's no way of following Jesus than doing it together, there's just no other way. So we gather because the early church did. Because scripture urges us to. We gather because it's good for us. And we gather because it's one of the primary, primary ways we cultivate a life of worship. I'm going to invite the team up. Why don't you bow your heads with me. Let's pray. Um... Father, I want to thank you this morning that uh, gathering together is not like an accidental uh, side thing that we do. It, it just serves a function. It, Lord, it's something that um, we learn is, is important. Uh, it's something, it's your idea. Uh, you knew that there's no such thing as a solitary Christian. We can't do this life without, without others, without encouragement and accountability. Lord, Lord, uh, I pray you would, um, in the months and years ahead, would you infuse our meetings with greater meaning. (laughs) Lord, uh, they would be truly worship services. Yes, uh, we want to honor you in the way we do these services, but Lord, I pray in every way our hearts would be drawn to worshiping the living God. Lord, would you um, deepen our faith? Uh, cause us to grow as apprentices of Jesus. And I pray you'd bless this congregation in both its large gatherings and its smaller gatherings. And we would grow because of them. We dedicate this year to you. Father, I pray whatever habits we need to be adding to our life this year in order to actually make choices that would bring life, we, we pray you'd help us with that. We, we don't underestimate how challenging that can be Well we invite you, we ask you into our life of habit to um, give us strength to choose well and to live well in this coming year. We pray these things together in Jesus' name, amen.